Please turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Martin Luther once talked about his approach to reading the scriptures and it it captivated me all week long. Um, I was reminded of this quote after I had studied all week, but I was in the throes of the quote without remembering the quote at the beginning of the week. We're in James chapter 1 verse 18. And this is what Luther said, quote, pause at any verse of scripture that you choose and shake it. Every bow of it, that if possible, some fruit at least may drop down to us. And if this mode appears somewhat difficult at first and no thought suggests itself immediately, yet persevere and try another and another bow. If your soul really hungers, the Spirit of God will not send you away empty. You shall at length find in one, and that perhaps a short verse of Scripture, such an abundance of delicious fruit that you will gladly seat yourself under its shade and abide there as under a tree laden with fruit. So I sat under the tree of James 1.18 all week. It reads, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, for his work of illumining your word and helping us to see how rich and how full it truly is. We thank you that we have this holy Bible, your self-revelation, because it truly is a revelation of who you are. And we thank you especially for these last weeks in James that we've been going through temptation and trials and struggles because many of us are experiencing them and how we cannot lay that at your feet, not the temptations. The testings for approval we will gladly give to you as you enable us by your power and your grace to stand up to the testings and end up approved but the temptations we need to take full responsibility for as we've been enticed away through our lusts and commit sins sometimes. Father, forgive us for those sins. Restore us, we pray, in that even this morning that we might be clean and that we might be able to receive everything that your Holy Spirit has for each one of us individually today. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in James 1.18, the writer, James, concludes his argument against the idea that God is a source of temptation to, to evil. We went through 13 through 17 and discussed all that. James provided stark revelation as to the source of temptation. And surprise, surprise, temptation comes, he says, when personal lust has carried a person away. He, de- he in- 
individualize the whole matter by saying that lust belongs to each one of us. We each have lusts or desires, if you will. And it's when a personal, uh, it, it is when personal lust is conceived that it gives birth to sin then. There's a process, and we walked all through that process together. So thereby laying the blame for sin squarely on the individual committing the sin and not on God. James was very, very intent on wanting his readers to understand it is not God that has brought this temptation to you. Sometimes people blame God. Why are you doing this to me? I go to church. Why are you doing this to me? I pray. I have devotions every morning. That is not something James wanted his readers to experience because it's just flat out wrong. In verses 16 and 17, he warned his readers not to be deceived and think that God is doing that because that would be to think wrongly about God and his character. Rather than a tempter to do evil, he is proven to be a giver of every good and perfect gift from above. He's our heavenly Father, the Creator, and the one who is immutable, unchangeable. He's doesn't change. Now in verse 18, James expresses the most marvelous gift possible, the gift of new life. In this concluding verse, James provides us with how, the what, the means, and the result of what theologians refer to as regeneration. It's the greatest gift possible for sinful people on this earth, and Romans tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So this is the greatest gift that this giver of every good and perfect gift could ever give to us. It's from a God who is all good and not evil. So the how of regeneration, regeneration presupposes death. That's the first place we have to go to. We must. The first thing that needs to be established when speaking of regeneration is is how it's accomplished. This, This presupposes something that is very important, that the individual that is in focus here is one who is assumed to be dead. And this is a hard truth, and one that's not received very easily by those that are in that state of death. That person is spiritually dead, and they're very resistant to admit the seriousness of their condition, but they are spiritually dead. People will allow the thought that they're not everything that they could be, they'd admit that. Some will even confess that they can be unkind sometimes or inconsiderate maybe dishonest every once in a while, even a little crazy. But dead? No way. That's too far. That's beyond the pale to admit that they're dead. Dead men walking. Alive physically, but dead spiritually. What does it mean? What does it look like? Well, the state of death is evidenced in life when there is resistance towards religion or the things of God, if you will. 
Their hands don't serve others. They don't walk in the ways of God. Their mouths never pray. Their eyes are blind to the beauty of the gospel. And their ears are utterly deaf to God's word. If you've talked to your relatives and friends and workmates, if you will, about spiritual things, you know exactly what I'm talking about. As Isaiah described Israel at one point in her history, (coughs) the whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises and welts and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged nor softened with oil. That was a picture of Israel worshiping idols and turning their back on the living creator God, their God. And Isaiah said their whole head is sick, meaning their whole person, their whole individual is sick. Now the book of Romans talks about this. It describes this perennial state of death and what David wrote about in Psalm 51.5, David said, Behold, I was brought forth, born. I was brought forth in iniquity and sin in my mother's, in, and in sin my mother conceived me. So he goes even before the conception, or before the birth, and says, I was conceived in sin. Paul says in Romans, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God because all have turned aside and together they've become useless. Just think of that word for a second. Useless. When I think of useless, I think what God created human beings to be, they have become useless to that end. There's none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. And with their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is a picture of one who is spiritually dead. And you can see why the spiritually dead one would say, no way, I'm better than that. I might fail in some areas, but I'm not that. But the word of God, which is true, says, you most certainly are. And you were conceived in sin and born in iniquity. Not a very nice picture. As a result, this death is seen as they're suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. You see, the unregenerate person really does know deep down in their heart that they are dead in trespasses and sins, But when you bring this kind of truth to them, because of their deadness, they suppress or hold down the truth in unrighteousness and go their merry way and continue to sin. 
Possibly the greatest text showing the need for regeneration or rebirth is seen in Ephesians 2, verses 1 and then 4 and 5. It says there that Paul is talking to the Ephesian believers, telling them before they were regenerate, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Unmerited favor. Nothing we could do. All of grace. All of God. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. That's regeneration. Bringing back to life, resurrecting, creating new life, a new person, a completely new person. Regeneration emphasizes the theological idea of monergism. Oh, there he goes again with those theological words. But this is important, people, so listen. Just think of mono. What's mono mean? I thought you were going to say man. No. Mono means one, right? So it's compared with synergism. Synergism means working together. Monergism means one. And this concept of regeneration really focuses and highlights the element of God being the sole worker here. It's monergism. It's not synergism. The grace of God is the only efficient cause in beginning and effecting conversion. Okay? That's what this verse teaches. Look at verse one, uh, 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. There's nothing in there about his creatures except that we become his creatures by this act of his will. The actual word regeneration is, is used in Titus 3.5. Listen to Titus 3.5. He, God, saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration, the Greek word, is a compound word made up of palin, which means again, and genesis, which means birth or beginning. To begin again. I don't know. Have you messed up your life? Would you like a do-over? Then yield yourself to Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. I did that well over 40 years ago. Believe me, I messed my life up royally. And believe me, he regenerated me. For these last 40 plus years, I've been living a completely new life. That old guy is dead. God said he was dead in trespasses and sins. But behold, I'm new. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's regeneration. Regeneration means giving new life. It is the spiritual counterpart to human reproduction in the physical realm. Human generation produces human life. Spiritual regeneration produces spiritual life. Prior to regeneration, the person may be alive physically, 
but dead to everything that's spiritual. Jesus talked with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and you can probably turn there. I think this is worth taking a quick look at. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 3 and going to verse 8. Let me read it. Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is regenerate, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How on earth can this be? How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? So Nicodemus got the first part, that Jesus is telling him something that's totally impossible. But he's looking at it through unregenerate eyes. What are you talking about? It's kind of like the people that followed Jesus for the food when he created the loaves and the fishes. And he says, you're following me because your stomachs are empty. They're looking at things from a a physical, a natural standpoint. And Nicodemus is looking at that in that same way. He says, you can't go back inside your mother's womb and be born, can you? Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, natural. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit or spiritual. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but don't know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Basically, he was telling Nicodemus, don't overthink this, Nicodemus. You will become utterly confused. Just listen to what I'm saying. You need to be born again. So, we see here that there, the word born, genao from Genesis, to bear, to beget, to born, to be born, to bring forth, it's used no less than eight times in this little passage. Eight times, Jesus told him, over and over and over again. And the contrast that Jesus used was between physical life and spiritual birth. And it's used by Jesus to help Nicodemus understand. Now, I believe that Nicodemus came to saving faith. I believe he was, he became regenerate. This is reflected in the first clause of James 1.18. In the exercise of his will, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. The exercise of his will. His will is the cause of regeneration. The term stresses that the new birth is rooted in the resolute will of God as a motivating force which gives life. Okay, monergism. There's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that a child does to be born or to be conceived, correct? That's the play that Jesus is using in John 3. In spiritual birth, it says in physical birth, the child has nothing to do with that. In Jesus' explanation to Nicodemus, it's obvious that the physical birth of the child has nothing to do with it, their conception or their birth. And so in the same way, the individual has nothing to do with their regeneration. But James 1.18 tells us it uh, is God and the exercise of 
His will that the individual is regenerate or born again. We might compare the unregenerate one with physical someone being physically dead. The dead have no awareness. They're dead. Now, I don't know how many of you have had the occasion to see a loved one or someone that you knew in a coffin at a funeral. They're dead. They're unable to respond to any stimuli. They're dead. And so with the spiritually dead, dead in trespasses and sin, it's the same. This is expressed clearly in John 1, 12 through 13. You remember that. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born, listen, there's that word again, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but, contrast, of God. Isn't that clear? It's so crystal clear. It's all of God. James 1.18 says, It is God's sovereign and uninfluenced will. I love that phrase, uninfluenced will. It isn't something we do that gets God to will us to be born again. It's uninfluenced. It's his will and his alone to regenerate, regenerate a person. Now, the what of regeneration are basically two things brought forth to us in the second clause of verse 18 where it says, he brought us forth. And the first is that only God can accomplish the new birth in the individual. And the second is that it truly is a new birth, a new beginning. He only brought us forth. There's there's only one way to cross over from death to life. And this is when he brings you forth. It says he brought us forth by his will, right? When we were dead, God in his great mercy made us alive. Only God breathed the breath of life into Adam's nostrils so that he became a living soul. What did Adam have to do with that? Only God can ever make a dead sinner into a living Christian. Only God formed the world out from nothing, so only God can make a person a new creation. Only God said, let there be light, and there was light, and only God can shine the light of the gospel into a a man's death-dark soul. Only God gave life to the dust formed into a man, and only God can give life to a spiritually lifeless soul. I've, I've said this before, when I met Christ for the first time, I was running 100,000 miles an hour in the opposite direction. That was the trajectory of my life. And by his great mercy, he reached down and, as my father would say, cuffed me. Right? And I just am forever grateful. I was not looking for him. I was not searching for him. I was searching for something. But it wasn't him, 
And nobody was more shocked than I when I found out all that Jesus stuff is true. Because <laughs> he regenerated me. And then I had eyes I could see. And I was shocked. Thank you. To bring forth is equal to birth. To bring forth is to birth. The Greek word translated brought us forth is from the same verb that is used in 115. Look at James 115. It says there, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth. The bring forth in 118 is the same as gives birth in 115. Now don't let it be lost and don't miss that sin births death. The end of what sin brings is death. But what God births is life. Zoe is a Greek word, life. Therefore, what 118 brings out is that God gives birth to new spiritual life. This is the born-again element in regeneration. Obviously, repeat it in John 3, eight times, he means something by what he's saying. But it's also seen in 1 Peter 1, 3 and verse 23, another text that you can jot down, who according to his great mercy, mercy is a big part of this, right? Because we don't have anything to do with it, so obviously mercy has been shown to us. Who according to his great mercy, listen to this, has caused us to be born again. How much more clear can it be? It's monergism. He has caused us to be born again. And in verse 23 it says, For you have been born again, get this, not of seed, which is perishable, like natural seed, but imperishable. And we'll get to this in a moment. The instrument of regeneration. How does this happen? Considering the condition of a person before regeneration, it causes a question that's reasonable to ask. How on earth does this take place? If you're laying there dead as a, as a corpse, spiritually, just picture somebody laying on a slab in a mortuary. How does that something all of a sudden be regenerate and come to life? What takes place there? The Bible's description of the one who has not been born again is devastating people. Just a sample description of unregenerate man makes anyone with any self-awareness at all shudder. This is going to be rapid fire. I want you to listen. The unregenerate is dead in sin and trespasses, Ephesians 2.1. They are lost in trespasses and sin, not just dead, but they're lost, Luke 19.10. They are slaves to sin, Titus 3.5. They are bound in sin, Romans 6.16. They are enemies of God, literally enemies of God, Romans 8.7. They are incapable of saving themselves, Romans 8.8. They excuse their sin, all the while encouraging others to do it. That's found in Romans 1.32. They're alienated from God or separate from God, Ephesians 2.12. And they are living in the world without hope. 
They are hopeless in the world, Ephesians 2.12. Titus 1.16 says they are detestable. Titus 3.5 says they are disobedient. And to wrap it all up, in Titus 1.16, it says they're worthless for any good deed. Yikes. That is the state of the unregenerate person. There's no amount of renovation or self-improvement that can remedy the condition caused by the fall of sin. Only an entirely new transformation, a new birth, a start over can do it. And on top of the bleak picture of those who are unregenerate, James tells us that there is nothing we can do about alleviating it. Rather, it has to be God and only God who provides the new life to those who are dead in trespasses and sins. The burning question is how? I get it, Lynette. I'm bad off. Without God, I'm hopeless in this world. I'm a corpse. I'm dead. Well, James gives us the answer of how this takes place. Regeneration takes place by the word of truth. By the word of truth. Look at 118. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. He gave us that new birth. How? By the word of truth. Very clear. The word of truth is another way of saying the gospel in a restrictive sense. In Ephesians 1.13, we have any confusion removed because it says this, quote, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. That's what we're looking at, the word of truth, right? And then, just so we don't misunderstand, Paul writes the gospel of your salvation right after that. The word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And the phrase is also identified with the gospel in Colossians 1.5. Quote, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, and then Paul adds right after that, the gospel. The word of truth, in a more general sense, means the entirety of the Bible. Colossians 1.5 shows that the word of truth actually contains even information about the hope that's laid up for believers in heaven. So it's everything that's within here, but in a restrictive sense, it's the message, the good news, the gospel which is quite simply this. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We are born that way. And short of God regenerating us through the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, we will not experience heaven. It's very, very simple. The word of truth. In Timothy, Paul was his spiritual father, Paul urged him in his ministry saying, present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed because you accurately handle the word of truth. That's not just speaking about the gospel. That is the entire, the entire scriptures. And Paul encouraged him, be a, a good workman, approved workman of God with the scriptures. The instrument of regeneration, the word of truth. Years ago, I heard this this phrase, and I've never forgotten it. I I tried to look it up, and 
they credit it with everybody. So I don't know who actually first said this, but there are only two things eternal in this life, the Word of God and the soul, souls of people. And therefore, if you want your life to count, be involved with both. I remember hearing that when I was quite young in the faith. And I thought, that makes a lot of sense. And this ball of dust, the only two things that are eternal is the Word of God. This will never change. This is established in heaven. Okay? And the souls of people. And if you want your life to count, be involved with both. And to the best of my ability and by the grace of God, I determined to do that. That's what my life has been since he saved me. It is the gospel, the word of truth, that is the power of God for salvation because man really doesn't live by bread alone, but he lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The instrument of regeneration is the word of truth. Now, the prophets spoke about this back in the Old Testament. This is not just a New Testament truth. In Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, speaking of the new covenant, listen to how monergistic this is. We read this, quote, it's Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. No less than six times in that short text does Yahweh tell us it is he and he alone that exacts this and carries this out. This is the new covenant. When we take communion, we celebrate the new covenant in his blood. We are the first fruits. I'll get to that in a, in a moment here. This is so good. You can see why I just sat under the shade of this tree, right? Because we're the first fruits experiencing some of the new covenant, which was really made with Israel, but we, like a bunch of wild olive branches, have been grafted in. Okay? And so we experience some of the blessing of the new covenant, not in fullness, that comes later, but we at least get some of the first fruits of that, that new covenant. In Thessalonians, we were just talking about this at the men's Bible study last week. For this reason, Paul said of them, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. And then he adds this little bit on the end, which performs its work in you who believe. I believe that's a regeneration process. It performs its work in those that believe it. 1 Thessalonians 1.13. So that work that the Word of God performs in the believer is a new birth, whereby the believer's death is turned to life. Blind eyes are open, a deaf ear is now here. Enmity is reconciled. Alienation is replaced with koinonia, fellowship. Slavery is changed to freedom and disobedience to a willing submission to his will. 
and all because of that which is performed by the word of God. Is this important or what? When we witness to other people, use the word of God. Don't just tell them stories or your version. Use verses right from the word of God. This is power. This is reserved in heaven. This is eternal. Now, 2 Corinthians 4, another chapter talks about reconciliation, okay? 2 Corinthians 4, after identifying the state of the unregenerate, which is bleak again, Paul uses something similar to James' wording in James 1.17. In fact, that grabbed hold of Tracy's heart this week and and father of lights. It's an awesome term. And, and in 2 Corinthians, Paul is kind of grabbing hold of that thought, father of lights, because he says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, going all the way back to creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Father of lights has shone in our hearts. Peter says the children of God have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God, 1 Peter 1.23. Now, let me just lapse for a second here with some corrective teaching because we need to hear these things. Because God tells us he uses his word as the instrument for regeneration, therefore other teaching that baptism is a means of regeneration, such as the Roman Catholic Church teaches, Eastern Orthodoxy teaches, and even some elements of the Lutheran Church teaches, baptismal regeneration cannot be true. It just cannot be true. It goes against all the scriptures that I've just listed. And yet the Catechism of the Catholic Church reads this, quote, Baptism not only purifies from all sins, but also makes the neophyte, that one being baptized, a new creature, a new creature, and an adopted son of God who has become a partaker of the divine nature, members of Christ and co-heirs with him and the temple of the Holy Spirit. I think they have things mixed up a bit. They're talking about regeneration. They do admit to original sin, but they say baptism is what deals with that. Water baptism, people. The Anglican Book of Common Prayers even cites this, quote, We thank you, Father, for the water of baptism. In it we are buried with Christ in his death. By it we share in his resurrection. Listen to this. Through it. We are reborn by the Holy Spirit. No, no, no. That is error. It is false teaching. And it gives a false sense of security. Of course, they are basing their error on the misinterpretation of John 3, 5, which we read. I want you to listen to this. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus, talking to Nicodemus, unless one is born of water, And of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. But the phrase born of water doesn't refer to baptism. In the rest of John 3, he doesn't mention baptism at all. 
And yet in other junctures he talks of baptism. He was baptized himself. But if baptism were necessary for rebirth, Jesus would have obviously done some teaching on it and commanded that we all be baptized. He never did. The Old Testament uses the symbolism of water and spirit to illustrate spiritual cleansing and renewal, but never for baptism by water. Did you catch that? I want to say it again. The Old Testament uses symbolism of water and spirit to illustrate something totally different than baptism. It's never related to water baptism. It is related to cleansing and renewal spiritually. In uh, Ezekiel 36, the prophet's prophecy of the new covenant where sprinkling of clean water is linked with cleansing a new heart, a new spirit, and how God will put his spirit within. Doesn't say anything about the rite of baptism. There's just no correlation between the illustrations in the Old Testament and water baptism. That is a man-made construct. And it has deceived millions of people. Millions of people. Somebody's praying for me because I kept the lid on my temper there. I... It just, it just, ugh, I, I simmer inside when I think of that and the deception. Well, the result of regeneration, this is good stuff here. So that, that's a purpose clause, because, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So this whole regeneration thing has the end purpose that we who are regenerate by God's will through the word of truth that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This final clause of verse 18, there's a glimpse of what the future holds for the believer because of their regeneration. Not only does the new birth transform and make life more meaningful, it's what Jesus promised, right? I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Mary and I have sometimes prayed to God, less abundance, less abundance. Because our lives are just full, full to overflowing, right? But that's what the regenerate life is. There's a glorious future, not only the life that we can live now, just filled with things that we can do with God, empowering us to do them, but we have a future hope as well. There are at least two things that need to be said about this last clause here. The first is that it speaks of the culmination of regeneration. This is the end point here, what regeneration ends with. And the second is that it is to God's glory and not to man's benefit. It's important we understand that. We do benefit. We are the ones that get to experience the life in abundance. We are the ones that get to experience the 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 affirmation in our heart of hearts that the Spirit dwells within us and that we have a down payment of a future life in heaven with God, that's true. We get all that benefit, but really in the end, it's for God's glory, not man's benefit. The concept of first fruits is seen in the Old Testament where Israel was uh, obviously a farming uh, society in a New Testament It was the same. Jesus often used illustrations of farming in his sermons to drive home his points. 
the parable of the soils, the prodigal son who went and worked at a pigsty, the fields are white unto harvest, etc. They're constant allusions to agriculture and so forth. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew words translated first fruits refer either to the portion of the crop that is the first to be ripe, that's one meaning, but also the part that is the best, because it doesn't just necessarily refer to crops. It can refer to livestock as well. It can refer to things in your possession that you have, the very best of. Numbers 18, 12 through 13 shows both aspects where Yahweh designated the first fruits as the priest's portion. They're offered to God, but God says, give them to the priests. Quote, all the best of the fresh oil. So there you have oil. The best of the fresh oil is a first fruit. And all the best of fresh wine. That's, of course, grape juice, right? Okay. And of the grain. The first fruits of those which they give to the Lord. I give them to you, he says to the priests. The first ripe fruits, now we're getting to what we usually think of as first fruits. The first ripe fruits of all that is in their land, which they bring to the Lord, shall be yours. So the first fruits were given over to the priests. In the New Testament, Paul uses a metaphor of first fruits to speak of the relationship between the resurrection of Christ to the resurrection of the dead. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 real quickly with me. First Corinthians 15, let's look at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And then verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ is the first fruits. And after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. So the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, one of the tenets of Orthodox Christianity that we believe, Jesus rose from the dead, is a harbinger that we too will rise from the dead because he is identified as a first fruit. First fruits are like of a harvest. It's the harbinger of a full harvest to come afterwards. It's the first little apples that you get on your tree, the first tomatoes that ripen. It's just a proof that more is to come, right? Likewise, the Holy Spirit is called first fruit in Romans 8.23. It's a foretaste of the heavenly and divine life bestowed on us in the age to come. And when Paul speaks of his first converts in a region, he calls them the first fruits, like in Romans 16.5. In that, they are the first fruits of God's eschatological or future harvest among the nations. The Taliabo are the first fruits of that area of Indonesia that is unreached. The whole idea here is that as Jesus Christ was the first fruits of a great resurrection, the regenerate are also the first fruits of God's wonderful harvest. You are. And it's God's harvest, not yours. That's why I say it's to his glory. There's more to this regenerate life than the fact that the regenerate have been saved from the wrath of God. God calls them first fruit among his creatures, his creation. Romans chapter 8, 
And I'm, I'm almost at the end, so bear with me. Romans 8.18 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now listen, this is so practical for all of us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That would be the regenerate ones. Those to whom God gave the right to become the sons of God or the children of God. Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Talk about ecology. Talk about the unity of what God has created. Do you realize that our regenerate state is linked to the renewing of the heavens and the earth? People, what are we a part of? Verse 22, For we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, there it is, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, don't we? Waiting eagerly for the, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We get rid of this mortal and put on immortality. For in the hope, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what they have already seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. This whole idea is a foretaste of the heavenly that God has given to us as his children. In closing, I want to give you just a short list that you can use as a checklist because I want you to be regenerate. I want you to be regenerate. And only God can do it according to his will through his word. But if you are regenerate, your life will be marked by these characteristics. Okay? Take them down. They're also called the tests of life in 1 John. The regenerate person will keep his commandments. 3.24. John 3, 1 John 3.24. The regenerate person will keep his commandments, and they're not burdensome to him. Then... The regenerate person, they walk like Jesus walked. 2, verses 5 and 6. 1 John 2, 5 and 6. These are all from 1 John. They will love other people. They will be marked. Their lives will be marked by loving others. 3, 4. They don't love the world. John, uh, 1 John 2, 15. They purify themselves. 3.3. Three. They're unafraid to admit that they follow Jesus. That's a big one. 2.23. The regenerate person practices righteousness. Not perfectly, but that's the mark of their life. They practice righteousness. 1 John 3.7. They sin. Uh, sin no longer defines their life. It's not the characteristic of their life that they're sinners. Do they sin? Yes, we all sin. 
But in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have a way to deal with those lingering sins that we commit. But sin isn't the main mark of our life. Righteousness is. And you find that in 3, 6. The regenerate is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 1 John 4, 13. And get this. He believes Jesus is Messiah or the Christ. 1 John 5, 1. And he overcomes the world. He has victory over things of the world. 1 John 5, 4. And the regenerate one is able to discern the truth from error. They know right from wrong. They know right from wrong. And that's 1 John 4, 6. You look at the world today, my friend, and you say, this is crazy. Are you serious? They just called white black and black white. Now, I'm not talking about white supremacy here. But they're doing that, right? And you say, this is insanity. Yes, it is. But do we expect anything less from unregenerate people? And there are a lot of unregenerate people that are in positions of leadership, not just in this country, but in all the nations of the world. The entire world lies in the hands of the evil one, right? Until Jesus comes back. Now, the only reason I gave you that checklist is to just examine your own heart because we can deceive ourselves, especially if we're dead in trespasses and sins. We will push back against not being regenerate. We will fight against that. But pray that God will have mercy on your soul if you don't see these marks in your life. You will not be perfect. That's not talking perfection. This is the trajectory of your life. This is the new, the new person that you become in Christ Jesus. So James, just in closing, by defending the character of God that he is good and does not tempt to evil, has provided us with one of the sweetest teachings in all the New Testament, the doctrine of regeneration. And the teaching that all must be born again. And the only question that remains is, are you? Are you? And I can't answer that for you. But I'd be willing to talk to you about it if you have questions. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Father, for the doctrine of regeneration, the new birth, the start over. Father, some of us have made shipwreck of our lives, our marriages, our families, our work situations, because we just have, and we need you to not just renovate us, we need you to actually transform us into new creatures. And that's exactly what you say happens when we become new creatures in Christ. The old is passed away, done with, and behold, all things become new. Oh, Lord, may it be so in the lives of the folks listening right now, whether online or here in the church. And Father, those of us that know the regeneration of the Spirit of God in our lives, may we rejoice as we've never rejoiced before, and may we eagerly await the return of Jesus, which is very, very close. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.